The A&R guy has been a stock figure in the music business for years, but what does that person actually do? A&R, which stands for Artists and Repertoire, is still an important job. A&R people are on the front lines of discovering new talent and ideally have the power to sign bands to a label. At some labels, A&R is done by one person, and at other labels, A&R is a company-wide project. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label Kill Rockstars. Today, we're going to talk to people who are doing the job of A&R about what they do. What's the secret to being a successful A&R person? It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind Today I'm talking to Tom business. Wally in our Los Angeles studio. Tom, welcome to The Future of What. Glad to be here. So you have a fascinating story, and I wanted to start right out by just getting you to tell us, how did you get into the music business? Well, my first job in the, in the business was in 1979, and I started in the mailroom at Warner Brothers Records. Excellent. And from there, you moved up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try to give you the short versions of it all, but yeah. uh, I, I used that as a platform to learn, to understand mm-hmm. what the the business was or what the company was. And I would take classes at UCLA at night that would explain more to me that I could learn in the mailroom, but I would connect it to things. So when I would deliver mail to the promotion department, I would learn what the promotion department did, you know, by talking to people, getting to know people. And I did that with every department in, in the company. And... Through you know a few years of doing that, and I realized what I wanted to do or what I thought was appropriate for me. I didn't see myself calling radio stations and convincing them to play music or going to retailers and convincing them to take music in the stores. I wasn't a salesman, so that's not what fit me. I was pretty quiet and a bit shy. So I thought, hey, I can listen to music. <laughs> and I love listening to music. And I would go out at night and, and see bands in town. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, I should do this. So I focused on getting into the A&R department from the mailroom. Wow. And you did. And I did. You did eventually get into the A&R department. Yeah. So I would, the, the mailroom gave you access to things. <laughs> that, <laughs> um, you had as much information as you wanted to have from financial information on the company to, to anything. You, wow. guys, you got to know people, you, you made copies of things. And so if you were smart and you read them, you would learn, right? And steal anything, but I would intellectually read it and, and hold on to it in my brain. But one of the things I was able to do when I would pick up mail from one A&R person to another, they would pass notes to each other of bands they would see at night. So there just happened to be a, a copy machine between one office to the other, and I would uh, make a copy for myself, and then I would go out at night and see the bands that they were looking at and make my own notes. Oh, wow. And, and then uh, and I would get a better feel for what what was the difference between what got signed or what didn't get signed and what the thinking or the feeling was around, and then apply my own instincts to it, to myself. I would just do that. And wow. then, so that paid off. And then one day I walked into the head of the department's office and I said, I want a job. <laughs> and uh, 
She said yes. And she walked me down the hall to an office that was filled with, at the time, demo tapes came in and cassettes. Right. And it was literally an office filled from floor to ceiling, from wall to wall, of thousands of demo tapes that were sent into the company. And she said, they're all yours. Give them a listen. Wow. And I listened. It took me one year and I listened to every one of them. Wow. And what happened from that listening? I think out of all of that music, at first I was like, oh, I like this, I like this, I like this, isn't this great? And then I realized, eh, it's not that great. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're so anxious to find something that the company would sign. So I started to edit myself quickly. Think about it, out of all of those thousands of tapes, I think one was seriously considered, but didn't get signed, but was seriously considered. And that's when I realized that was not how things were really done, that there were other ways that you found music that could be important and it wasn't coming by unsolicited demo tapes coming in the mail. Right. So what was the first band that you signed and how did you sign them? If I go back in time, I mean, today, what what young A&R people are are scouts, you know, they're out there looking and searching. Back then, we weren't called scouts. We were we were associates of A&R. We had like a corporate title or something. And uh, But I was fundamentally a guy out there looking for things and let the, the other people make decisions about them. Hmm. So it took me a while to learn, you know, hey, I have to sign this or I want to sign this and sort of rally it. But I was good at finding things, right? So the first band I ever sort of stood up behind was Modern English. They, wow. they had a song called I Melt With You. Mm-hmm. And I was going, wow, this it came in the mail. It was coming in the mail, but it came in through through Beggar's Banquet, Martin Mills. Right. And at that time, they didn't have U.S. operations and they licensed music into uh, American record companies and they had a preferred relationship with Warner Brothers and the music came in and I was like, this is great, this is great. And we ended up signing it to Sire Records uh, with Seymour Stein and that record's been around forever. Yeah, and it's obviously a huge, huge record. Yeah. So how did you move from that to the head of Warner Music? What what ended up... Well, the, the the process of moving up the ranks in the record industry, I mean, it can happen in many different ways. Warner Brothers was an incredible, incredible record company, and I was extremely fortunate and lucky to have picked the right one to get into the mailroom. That uh, their sensibility, the cultural sensibility of how they did business, that they perceive music as an art form, right? And they balanced out the business with strong support of of that art. And that was, if I was somewhere else, there's companies that didn't understand that. They, there was more understanding of it as commerce, right? And so for me, the, that combination of art and business fit me really, really well, right? So that learning curve of and understanding that to this day is is created my philosophy on how I want the business of music to work. So from Warner Brothers, I couldn't find my way up the ranks. It, there were a lot of people sort of in front of me. And I got a call one day to, uh, from Capitol Records to go work for them. And they were tripling my salary. And I was like, Yahoo, isn't this great? And <laughs> Warner Brothers couldn't find a role for me as a, you know, to sort of move up the ranks. So I left. Right? And I went to a company that culturally was so different that it was about commerce and not mm-hmm. about art. And it was in the beginning very difficult for me. And I was like, oh my God, I made the biggest mistake of my <laughs> career. What do I do now? <laughs> right? right. So one day I just woke up and I said, 
you know what? I made this decision. I've got to figure this out. And this is now the time for you to stand up and be your own person, to take, to make your own decisions about what you want to sign, not do it in a sense of community, which was part of how it was done at Warner Brothers, which was great, but I didn't like the tastes of the other people on Capitol Records. So I said, okay, this is my time. And that was, so what, what felt wrong to me, like I made a bad decision, I turned into one of the best decisions I made because I made myself accountable. Awesome. Yeah. And and the first act I signed was a group called Crowded House from Australia, and um, it became incredibly successful. And that created a lot of belief in myself to go do it more. Right. And then things kind of took off from there. And then I became the head of head of the A and R department at Capital from doing good things. And my boss and I at the time hit political difficulties with new senior management at corporate and they, they fired me for signing the Beastie Boys and Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> <laughs> what a horrible mistake. <laughs> they told me Bonnie Raitt was too old and the Beastie Boys didn't have a fight for your right to party on, uh, on their album. Oh, isn't that amazing? And that album was Paul's Boutique. Right. Yeah. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and Bonnie Raitt won five Grammys. Yeah. For a nick of time. Yeah. Amazing. So is that when you went back to Warner at that point? No, there's still a lot in between. Oh um, so I was sitting at home with no job and being a out of work A&R person in our business is not a good thing because people, it, our business follows heat, right? And if you lose your job, that's considered cold. Mm -hmm. And if you're cold, people don't call you. Right. So no one returned my phone calls and uh, after done a lot of great work. And Bonnie Raitt won her five Grammys for Nick of Time a few months later after they let me go. And the phone started ringing because she thanked me on the podium when she won her Grammys. Awesome. So that was a nice payback. Mm -hmm. And this man, Ted Field, called, or his representative called, and he said it was a man who wanted to start a record company. And that was Interscope Records. Wow. Right. So I joined him, and this other guy, John McLean, joined him, and Jimmy Iovine joined him, and the four of us set out to start Interscope Records. And that was in 1990. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And I mean, the rest of that is history. Yes. To some extent. Yeah. So you were at Interscope for how long? About 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And John McLean and myself were the, we were the A&R guys. We were the guys finding the music. Mm -hmm. And our simple philosophy of Interscope was to empower the music. And so you empower the people who signed it and and then everyone else was there was there to service the, the music, right? Mm -hmm. So if Jimmy Iovine, Ted Field, John McLean, or myself wanted to you know, sign something, we were empowered to go make it happen. And there wasn't anything in between us. And it was the most lethal thing I've ever felt in terms of seeing an act in a club or hearing music and be able to act on it and provide the support for, the, for that vision without any interference. Wow. Right. So it was truly an independent company, just the way... Porsche, you you have with your company where you make your own decisions and you 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 follow up on them, right? And that was the same thing. But we were, we were the intention wasn't to be small or we had the resources to be as big as we wanted to, right. because Ted Field provided the the money to to do it. Right, that's amazing. Yeah. So then, after you left Interscope, 
Where did you go? Somewhere around 2000, we sold uh, Interscope and we kind of all went our separate ways. Uh, the four of us went our separate ways. So I went to Warner Brothers from there, they called and I thought, wow, this could be really cool. I was in the mailroom uh, <laughs> in the beginning and now I'm the chairman of the company. And I used to dream that when I was the, you know, to motivate myself when mm-hmm. I was pushing the mail cart around, <laughs> around the floors. So the fact that I could actually make it happen and I thought the right thing was to say yes and go do it. That's so so cool. (laughs) That's a really cool trajectory. So let's talk a little bit about your A&R philosophy, because I think that's one of the things that makes you, I mean, you've had so many different experiences and you've worked for so many different types of companies. And like Mm -hmm. you said, you know, you've had budget constraints, you've had total freedom. Now you run your own independent label. So, you know, you've really done a lot, but still within that, you have this A&R philosophy. Again, going back to Warner Brothers, there was that sort of helped define what my philosophy became, although it evolves over time. And, you know, that there's, as you go through changes in the business or that, you, you, you probably adapt a bit to what your philosophies are. But I, I always thought it was important to find things that were, had some unique voice about themselves that had a point of view, as I like to call it. And that point of view can come from anything. It can come from a lyric, it can come from the music, it can come from a voice, right? And I was always a strong believer in what I call, would call a self-contained artist, an artist who writes their own songs and, and performs them. Right. So that was that fundamentally is what I still believe in and what I, I still look for. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. We're talking to legendary AR guy Tom Wally. So when you sign an artist, how free do you feel to go into the studio with them? I mean, at what point are you like, okay, this is what we're doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, how does, how does that work with you when you sign an artist? Well, I, I don't define what their record should be or the sound of the record should be. It's, it's not nothing like that. It's more guidance. I think what makes our business work is I think when, when real artists find greatness, right? And that's not an easy thing to, to, to do, right? And if you look at any... Anything else in our world that you that this kind of is in front of us every day, like sports, right? We revere, for many people, revere the greatness of it, right? The greatest athletes. And those athletes always have coaches or personal trainers or personal advice, business people, et cetera. They get a lot of advice on how to become great or stay great. And it's the same sensibility that I pr- can provide guidance on, on where that, you know, how to help someone get to that point, help an artist get to that point. Right. So it's not interference, which some people define, are afraid of. That's, uh, you know, someone who can comes into the studio or someone who talks about my music is going to interfere and compromise who I am or what I am. And that's not it at all. Although that does happen. It's sure. not, it doesn't, yeah. it's not the philosophy that I bring into the room. When I sign someone, there has to be a shared vision and some insight into what they're doing that you believe in and that you can support. And when you have that, it's always been easy for me to to be able to help them in, in, in the process of making records and achieving what hopefully is greatness, right? So, and that could be anything from a mix to... I know, do they have all the right songs on a record to a vocal performance? Or it could be no advice whatsoever. It's just 
This, you did it. It's fantastic, right? So having that ability can make a big difference on what the, what the outcome is. And there are producers and songwriters and musicians that also do that probably better than I do in a certain way. But I'm not a record producer. I'm not a musician. But there's, I have an ability to hear things. Putting people together, is that something that you also do? Not so much from a songwriting standpoint, although I do some of that today. That's very prevalent in today's world where mm-hmm. there, if you looked at the Grammys the other night, some of the song categories, the song of the year categories, there were 20 writers on a song, right. right? So that idea of providing writing help for an artist is very prevalent, particularly in pop music. But in the self-contained artists, it's not something that is traditionally done, although Bob Dylan did it. (laughs) And many of the people in the 60s who were known as great songwriters, if you go and check the credits, collaboration was not a a taboo. It was part of what people like to do was to their friend down the street, they wanted to go write songs with them, right? right? So, you know, in today's world, that has become certainly an independent musician music. It's like been the taboo of, of writing or collaborating with producers or and that kind of thing. I think, quite frankly, I think that's a, that's a mistake. I think that it takes input, like I said, to achieve great things, right? And if you can learn from someone else to evolve your craft and evolve your knowledge around that craft, that's a that's a very good thing. Whereas if you shut it down, there's only so much any one person can know, right? right. Or any band can know, that's true. right? It, new knowledge is is helps you keep going, right? right? And I think that's the the mistake. If you know who you are and what you are and what your soul is and what makes your music different or than everybody else, it's impossible for someone else to to take that away from you. Right? right. So, but if they can provide knowledge that helps you become a better songwriter or a better guitar player or a better singer or how to make your voice sound better on a record or the process of making records becomes a better thing for you, then why not? Right. Right. I think we have a little bit of a cultural problem in our world with this idea of pure genius, you know, that someone just is born with some kind of talent and that it doesn't need any kind of nurturing or practice or encouragement or input, that they just are this like perfect flower that's going to grow and bloom. I mean, I really think that that's kind of an issue for us because I feel like you see it in, in all walks of life. So sports figures, movie stars, you know, you don't see any of the hours, hundreds and thousands of hours of practice that it took to get them there. You don't see the acting classes. You don't see the you know waiting tables for the actresses and the actors, you know, but there they are on your screen at home and you think, oh, someone just saw their genius and put them up there, you know, and I think that's a real problem for the music industry. Uh, absolutely. I th- there, there's a false sense of success that I think exists from the YouTube world or the, what I call the do-it-yourself world, where you can make a record in your bedroom today, right? And, and put a video up on YouTube and you can get in a van and all of a sudden you're successful, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all fine. It's, I think it's all helpful in the process. The, the beginning process for, for an artist decades ago was they, you know, they had to hone their craft in their garage or their bedroom. They had to spend hours and hours and hours playing their guitar or their instrument and then figure out how to find another guy who wants to play an instrument and 
put together a band in the you know in their parents' house or their garage or whatever. Then from there you got to find a club to let yourself play in and get yourself to play in. You have to write a song that the people on the other side like, right? And you had to create a demo of that song somewhere. And there was a harder process to get there. And from that it was a natural editing process of who was good or who wasn't, right? And it's easier today to get out of the gate, which I think is all good, right? right. But I do think it's interfering with great musicians making great music and sustaining it, right? The sustaining, sustaining part is what's it, yeah. difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes, can be an easier process when there's knowledge that, that you're learning from somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that happens in places like sports or any profession. There's mentorship. And we've, in the indie like rock world or any musician world, I think there's been a wall put up about that. And I think that's, that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. And if you look in pop music, where there's constant innovation, they're constantly looking for new sounds and they cannot, those artists cannot survive and sustain unless they have the best, one of the best five songs in the, in the world at any given time. Right. And if you're not in the top five, you don't have a career, right? Right. <laughs> so the competition to be the best, find the best, whether you like pop music or not, that that comp- competitive sensibility from producers, writers, and artists is what why pop music is is dominating right now, and less so on the musician world because it's there's this less of interest of, of what feels like what it takes to innovate. There's innovation inside of what I already know, mm-hmm. but there's not innovation by inviting maybe more knowledgeable people in the room to help you get to a place that maybe is the unknown when that's where greatness happens is the unknown. Right, right. Good point. So a few years ago, you started your own independent record label, Loma Vista. And how is that for you? I mean, coming from the major label world that you were in for so long, how does it feel to be an independent now? <laughs> well, I, I I have felt independent for a very long time. I think since we started Interscope, that was my first sense of what independence was. And we were an independent. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it, to some people, didn't feel that way because we became big. But mm-hmm. we were truly independent. We owned the company, right? The self-finance, self-owned. That's what the definition <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> we owned it. It just became big. And then when it sold to a, to a big corporation, then it clearly it wasn't anymore. Right. But I had that feeling. That's where I learned what that really meant, right? And mm-hmm. so, as I said before, it's that, that sense of empowering the music and trying to have clear vision and support of that vision around it. I've never, I haven't lost that since I learned what it was, really, when I truly mm-hmm. learned what it was. And I brought that to Warner Brothers too. But where it clashed is when my corporate bosses didn't understand it, right? So it was better to get out than to, yeah. <laughs> than to stay in it and, and argue about it all the time. But the fun of, of creating Loma Vista is that I, I'm doing it again. It's just smaller and, and doing it in a, in a, a, a different way in terms of I'm, it's going to take a slower approach to build to build the company than was at Interscope because we came in with a big force in mind where this is intended to be something a little more moderate in its early sensibilities. Okay. But but the empowerment of music, the freedom of creativity, the supportive creativity, that sensibility is still intact. Cool. Do you have any stories from any part of your career where you were really backing a band and you had opposition and then... It just really worked out well. <laughs> There's lots of those. I want to hear them. <laughs> I love lots those of stories. Those. 
Well, the Beastie Boys story was was interesting because yeah. I was the head of A and R. We were trying to I was trying to build this really cool roster. We had signed Skinny Puppy and and who they thought I was out of my mind <laughs> for. And I was trying to Capitol Records at the time was known for hair bands, right? Which mm-hmm. again had nothing wrong with it and heavy metal bands and stuff like that. I was just trying to add to the, to the sensibility. So when Paul's Boutique showed up and it wasn't a pop record like like Fife Your Right to Party, it confused everybody. And it cost me my job, mm-hmm. right? But clearly the end result was there that it's, I don't know what it sold at this point, but it's many, many millions. Yes. And is a classic record that yeah. has meant a lot to many, many people. And I think was a force in the change of music. So Absolutely. that was one that went from, what are you talking about? To something that was very, very successful. <laughs> to, oh, we were wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bonnie Ray, the same thing. Yeah. Tupac Shakur, you know, no one told me I was wrong, so to speak, but it was... Well, actually, there was a little bit of someone telling me I was wrong. But we, at that time at Interscope, we were attached to, for services, we were attached to a bigger company. And I won't mention names here, but we were, we were attached to one of the divisions of Atlantic Records. And I'd brought the two, first Tupac album into New York to play for them to, to get their support. And they all told me I didn't know what I was talking about. And uh, this record was terrible. And what do I know about rap music, which I didn't know anything. I just saw an artist that I liked, and I liked that he had something to say. And I thought, for building a roster, I think this guy's great. So I came back to to uh, Ted Field and Jimmy Ivey, and I said, what do we do now? I said, I they don't have their support. I, what do I do? And they said, well, you're a smart guy. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and uh, Ted said, here's your money. Go figure it out. And I went with the manager. We built our own team around the record and went out and sold a half a million albums. And then the rest is history. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, so that went from... Distincts to uh, history. I mean, being an AR person is a really interesting job because there's a clear talent, right? I mean, some people just have that talent, and that talent is to to sniff the zeitgeist, right? To like really be able to say, not only is this a great artist, but this is a great artist that people are going to love. Yes, which is kind of nuts, right? To have that talent, but then of course there's also just a ton of work involved in finding the artists digging, you know, knowing, knowing when to stop listening to the negative self-talk. I mean, there must be a lot, you know, of times when you've thought to yourself, maybe I'm wrong. Or do you never think that? Of course I did. I always, I always <laughs> had enough self-doubt in me to work harder. <laughs> so you're not right all the time. It's, it's not possible. Things change too, right? Sometimes you'll, you'll sign an artist and one of the band members will drop out. Right? Well, right, and some things like that happen, right? And sometimes you're just wrong. You thought you were so excited and the public really didn't care and it wasn't as good as you thought it was, right? Mm-hmm. Something changes, right? Or, 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 but you're, if you're not committed to your, to your beliefs, and the, I always wanted to live up to the promises I made to the artists, right? And because they, they're committing to you, right? Uh, that they have to sign a contract with you and it lasts for many, many years, right? right. And if you can't live up to your promises, then you shouldn't be in the job of A&R, right? right. And that was, again, that empowerment thing that I, I got from Interscope, where I could live up to my promises. I wasn't always right, but I would never let an artist down by not living up to what we talked about or what I said I would do, right? If something changed, I'd say, this is, this is something's changed here, so let's go do it this way, right? And I, I was willing to take it as far as humanly possible to find out whether 
the artist and our writer were wrong, right? And we're, did we were we doing something that people were going to like? And I, I still believe in that, right? Mm-hmm. And today is different, though. A lot of A and R is done through research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell tell us about that. I don't do it, so I don't I don't know <laughs> I know what people do. But there's enough information out there where you can collect YouTube views. You can people who are making music in their bedroom can put it out on their own, right? And then you can pick up that information through data, right? And and reading what is a hit in Australia on some little company or in some part of the world, and you pick up that information and run it through a computer, and they can tell you whether people like it or not. And you can oh. sign artists just based on that. Right. And I don't have a facility to do it. It works. People do it every day. And a lot. So I think the instinctual sensibility of and the ability to understand the talent and what makes it work. What's the heartbeat of this artist that's going to make a music fan like them? Right. And how do you expose that to them to get them to understand who they are? Right. And that takes years to do that sometimes. Right. And most of the time. But when it's about the immediacy of it, then it's easier just to have a computer tell you what to do and have research tell you what to do and make a phone call and say, hey, I, I did all this research on you on YouTube and I want to sign you. And they never met them. And they oh put God. a contract in front of them just because the research tells them to do it. Right. So that happens. Every, every every day. Wow. Every day. But I don't do it that way. I, I don't know how to, how to do that. Because <laughs> when you get to the reality of sustaining, I'm, in, I'm interested in, in an artist's career lasting. Right. I'm not into just, hey, you had a one-off song or one-off album, right? And I still believe in the album as an art form. Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult thing to achieve in today's world to make a body of work that's great from beginning to end and then mm. get someone to buy in, right. right? Whether they stream it or buy it or, or whether they buy a concert ticket or a t-shirt or bundles of it or whatever it is. It, it, the art form of an album is to get people to buy into a holistic view that this artist has something to say and they stand for something, right. right? Right. A computer can't tell you that. No. It's impossible. Yeah. And I fear that doing it that way, doing it by the numbers, you're going to end up with one album artists or one single artist. Yeah, because that you don't know why you signed them. Mm-hmm. You're just doing it because it's commerce. And if it's commerce, then that comes and goes, right? And that's one way to do it. There's, it's, you know, different record companies represent different things. And there's lots of record companies out there from the littlest ones to the biggest ones, right? And artists have their choices of who they want to work with or do it themselves, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I find in order to sustain a career and, and help someone have potentially a 30-year career or longer or whatever it is, that to understand what makes them unique creatively is really what's going to make it work because then you build culture, right? And it's not just the music that creates the culture. It's the artwork, it's the photographs, it's how you approach the marketplace. What's if, if someone wants to use their song in a movie, is it the right movie or the wrong movie for this artist? There's a lot of decisions that go into building a career that, and you can't do it unless you're, you understand this sense of culture and what makes this artist unique versus somebody else. And on that note, Tom Wally runs Loma Vista records, and we are so happy to have you in the studio today. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
That was Swear Jar by Milk Teeth. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. I'm talking today with Lewis Posen, the founder and president of Hopeless Records. Lewis, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you, Portia. I appreciate uh, you having me. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you because Hopeless is one of my favorite labels. It's been around, it's a venerable independent label. It's been around for how many years is it now, Lewis? It'll be 23 years in December. Wow. Congratulations on that one. (laughs) Survival is the new success. It is. It is. It totally is. So on our episode today, we are talking about A&R. It's a term that a lot of people don't understand. It stands for artists and repertoire, which is still kind of vague. But really, in the everyday world of record labels, it means the person or people who sign the artist, who, you know, discover the talent, and who put together a deal, and who sort of shepherd the whole project. Would you agree with that sort of vague overview? Uh, yes, although I'm, for whatever reason, that term A&R doesn't resonate with me, and so we rarely use it around our office, even though we know what the industry means by it. And there's so many different parts of working with artists that we try to more move those into categories that are terms and tangible things we can do to help develop their careers. And the words A&R don't don't ring to me as tangible and and something that has an action item connected to it. Yeah, I I completely understand that. I think that, you know, for ease of use, we're going to use it for this episode because I think in the industry, people do use it. And to some extent, it's a placeholder for, you know, somebody, it's somebody's job to to find the artists that we're going to work with. So, you know, is that, would you say that's generally your job at the label or do you have a team of people who work on that? So we do it as a team. Uh, the only one who puts it on their title is Eric. He puts it as business develop, VP of business development and A&R. But we do it as a team process. He's the one, he's the sort of face of it that goes out and usually initially meets with bands or talks to them on the phone or online. But then we've got other people here that work with him on gathering research and information. And then we as a team play stuff, talk about bands, discuss it. And then when we're ready to say we want to work together, that's sometimes before, but mainly when I get involved in negotiating the deal. And, you know, so that whole process of doing the research to find a band, how how do you find bands? Would you say you get like a lot of referrals from your other bands or do you just, you know, get demos? I mean, how do you do the discovery portion? Right. So it's A, B, C, and D, all of the above. So <laughs> our, 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 our bands, everyone here is online looking for stuff. Our partners, I mean, we'll, we'll get bands from our, everyone from our manufacturer who, you know, they're music fans. So they don't want to just be making vinyl records and CDs. You know, they, they listen to music. Same with the publicists we work with, same with the distributors we work with. So we, you know, managers, all these people are people we are doing business with on a regular basis who are music lovers, who are listening to music all the time. And we don't think that we're better than anybody else. So we'll take any suggestion anybody has. 
And probably the people who've worked with you for a long time do have a good sense to some extent of what you guys might like, right? Sure. Some have a sensibility about that and understand there's a vision here and understand what artists might fit within that vision. And then others, you know, just love all different kinds of bands and just want great bands to work with great people. So they'll throw it to us, even though we're like, oh, this probably fits better on these other labels. And we often actually send stuff to other labels. Yeah, I do too, actually. I mean, I've done that in the recent past. There, A band approached me that I thought was absolutely terrific, but I was like, you guys are a Daptone band if I ever heard one. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> I was like, you just, we're just not that label, but you guys yep. are terrific. What's your demo policy? Do you guys have a demo policy at Hopeless? Yeah, we take everything. And how does that work? Have you ever found a band from a demo or signed a band from a demo? We have. Yeah, it's not often, but we have. Yeah, I think we've signed four in 25 years. Right. Yeah, it's probably a similar percentage here. Yeah. We found at least two from interns. You know, they're a great source of finding bands. Definitely at least a few from our bands. Definitely. So it really it really is spread out. Yeah. So what's the philosophy at Hopeless? You know, what what is what would you say is the guiding force in your decision making about working with artists? Well, there's the philosophy of the company and then there's the sort of vision of artists and artist development. So we are a lifestyle and culture company and an artist development company. So we're although we look at things that other labels or major labels look at like songs and performance and how, you know how well a band is uh, branding themselves and communicating with fans and things but we really fit within a culture and a community and so it's clear to us when a band fits in that community and when they don't even if their sound may be inside or outside of that world it's it's sort of living it in who they identify themselves with and who they're friends with and who they communicate with online and those types of things. So we, although we'll take a shot at the band that we love that might be on the fringe of that culture and community, but mainly the things we sign are stuff that works in that. And I wish there was a good term for it. It, it, It used to be the word punk rock. It doesn't mean that anymore. So you know, there's several different subgenres that fit within our community, but it's mainly things that could go on tour, on Warp Tour, and can be covered by Alternative Press. Perfect. That's kind of great to have that, <laughs> I think. Yeah, well, this community, although not every fan is the same, and some, you know, be an all-time low fan, but they're also a Sweet or Kenny fan. It's possible, and it, there is a lot of those types of fans, but... I'd say the vast majority are ones who follow both the media and the tours and the labels and the artists that all sort of fit in our, what I'm calling a community. And there's, there's, there's benefits and there's downsides to it. You know, the benefits are it's very easy to reach those people because we all communicate in, in the same circles. You know, the downside is it has, there's only so many people in it. Right. So what's your, you know, this program is aimed largely at sort of aspiring musicians, musicians just starting out in their careers. And even then, you know, people who have been doing it for years. 
What would you tell a young band in terms of when do they think, when would you say they're ready to be actually talking to a label? Like at what stage, what should they have going on in their career for Hopeless to get interested, say? I would think the main thing is uh, you're ready when when the label comes to you. If you have to reach out to them, you're probably not ready because labels are looking for bands and they look for bands who have a lot going on and are doing things the right way on their own because so much of it could be done on your own. So that that's usually the best time to start talking to them. I would learn as much as you can about first off who you are and what you're trying to communicate and as much as you can about the business because as much as you are an artist you're also running a business being being a band and so you should you should know those things so you take the right steps moving forward and so it's pretty easy to tell what's working and not working it used to be very expensive to get to that place but now you can record a song and record a video for very inexpensive and you could put it up on YouTube for free and you could even put it on iTunes and Spotify for ten dollars and if no one's uh, streaming or and chatting about it you know that uh, it's probably not working do you think that a lot of bands skip that step you know, I, f- I feel like sometimes that happens. They put stuff out there and, you know, the response they get is largely from their friends and family, but they take it as, you know, great encouragement to continue. Right. <laughs> Which can be problematic. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not just a one. That's why you got to look at it trending over a period of time. So if, if, if all you tweet all your friends and Facebook all your friends and family and say, hey, check out our new video on YouTube, and then, you know, it's it gets a certain amount of streams for a week and then it drops off to to nearly nothing, then you don't have something really good going. You know, you've got something good going when it starts with your friends and family and then it it expands out and pretty soon you're trending upward and you did a thousand plays in a week. Now you're doing 2000. Now you're at 5000. You know, now you know you've got something that is connecting with fans. I think that's a really great advice for people to hear because sometimes I think with any arts, you know, people don't necessarily hear the not negative side, but just sort of the realistic side of the conversation where, you know, it's like, hey, guys, you tried this. It didn't work. Maybe try something else. It doesn't mean you're a terrible band and you, you know, you can't succeed, but you might want to do something different in order to, you know, get to the place that you want to be. I'm a huge fan of, there's a chapter, I I like business books and and other self-help type books, but there's one that I read the last year called Think Like a Freak by the guys who wrote Freakonomics, and there's a chapter in that book about the benefits of quitting. Mm -hmm. So uh, we talked about it a lot here, and there's just so much of how we're brought up around the world, but especially in the U.S., in the idea that quitting is bad and that giving up on something and trying something else is bad and that, you know, you've invested this much, you've got to keep going or, you know, it's, it's, it's other people, it's not you or, uh, you, you know, if you just keep pushing, somehow, some way it'll work. But right. I think so much of it is so, it's so obvious, like, hey, this isn't working, let's stop doing this and let's do something else. And I've seen bands who... Did two or three albums. It, it, it peaked out at a very low level, and then they decided, okay, let's stop doing this. And they kept all the same members, rebranded it as something else, and then came back and, and were bigger than ever. 
Yeah, I have too. And this, I talk about this a lot. I've been trying to find a way to talk about it that makes sense. But it's, it's like we have this issue in our culture where we believe in like pure artistry. And it's like, oh, your pure artistic vision cannot be touched. Like nobody can say anything against your pure artistic vision. And it's like, even if you just, if nobody cares, you have to hang on to that pure artistic vision till the day you die. You know, it's like, it's not okay to try things and fail, you know, and and then go back to the drawing board and try it again, you know? And I just wonder if we're really digging ourselves a weird hole in this culture with that mentality. Look, I, I honor and respect and appreciate an artist who does it exactly the way they want to do it, whether they succeed or fail, which are subjective terms, as long as they are happy and they're reaching the goals they want to reach, who am I to say they're doing it the wrong way? But if they're trying to commercialize it and bring in other partners and have people put up advances and marketing guarantees and get you know tens and hundreds of people to back their art and they need to get paid, then it's a different type of endeavor where you're doing it together, even though art is at the core of what you're all working on together. So sort of go into a different world once you start wanting goals higher than whatever comes out of the art that you present. Exactly. It's like they're sort of sometimes opposing viewpoints, right? Like you want a a type of success that is very mainstream, and yet you don't want to compromise anything to get there in your art. I think that can be problematic. I do too. (laughs) I mean, every once in a while, there's a needle in a haystack that someone does exactly the way they want to do it. They haven't compromised anything and uh, it all works out. I would say 99.9% of the time, that's not how it works. Right. I liked, we talked for this episode to Tom Wally, who is somewhat of a legendary A&R guy in the industry. And he was talking about how he sees part of his role as as just a person who connects people and who, you know, puts people together and with the benefit of his experience, you know, introduces bands to some people and ideas that they may not have had before, which I thought was right. a nice way of talking about, about what an A&R person can do. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big part of what we do, too. It's not just sales, marketing, and distribution. It's okay. Do they have a manager who would really work well with them? Do they have a booking agent who would work really well with them? If we're going to use an outside publicist, you know, who's the right fit for them? And there's definitely people who help an artist not just promote what they've already created, but are inspirational in, in the art that they create. And then we connect bands all the time to each other not with a particular purpose in mind other than we think that they'll get something out of the relationship. Yeah, and I think that's so critical. You know, I I feel like a lot of the emails I field from bands are from bands who are really working in a vacuum. You know, they just it's just them, it's just the four of them or the three of them or whatever, and they don't have a community of other artists and I feel like that is so crucial. I always tell people Go out there, go to shows, you know, get a public practice space, you know, meet some people because that's going to be, I mean, those are, those people are your first audience, right? Those are the people who come to your first shows and you go to their first shows and you build a community that way. Oh, absolutely. And you, you learn from, from their successes and their failures and you see what they're doing and, you know, it, it, it saves you a lot of time and, and heartache that you could uh, gain those experiences through someone else and not have to go through all of them yourself. Absolutely. 
Well, Lewis Posen is the president of Hopeless Records. Lewis, thanks for everything that you do, and thanks for coming on The Future of What? Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Vincent by Car Seat Headrest. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Robbie Morris of Matador Records. Robbie, welcome to The Future of What. Hey there. So today we are talking about A&R. So I wanted to talk to you because I know that at Matador you do A&R. That's right. And I thought you could give us some insight into sort of how does it work? Yeah, I mean, Matador's a label that has been around since 1989. So I was founded by Chris and Gerard here in New York, and they kind of were doing things on their own for a while, and Patrick Amory kind of came along a few years thereafter. For about 20 of those 27 years, it was kind of the three of them kind of discovering bands, bringing them in, and doing the creative development. And about seven years ago, they asked me to be a part of the team with kind of very distinct instructions that it is very much a label that is about kind of the ownership and about kind of the family. So we do kind of work, you know, a pretty strict kind of democratic kind of voting structure in terms of the way we we sign things. I think we try to do things so that all the partners are kind of involved on every level of the project so that you're not, you know, no band is kind of stranded with one kind of A&R representative or one person they can rely on. When they sign to the label, they know that they're getting the people who actually started the label way back when, fully kind of emotionally invested in the project. So it is, you know, one person could maybe be a champion of something, but it is very much a team effort when we when we bring something in. Yeah, that is, I love that. I think that's the coolest thing because, like you said, then you know that everybody at the label is really committed as opposed to like, oh, it's that guy's project, but, you know, we didn't really care about it. <laughs> exactly, and God forbid, you know, this this, this doesn't happen as as you know, the label's kind of been structured kind of the same way for, since its inception, but you know, you, there's no such thing as a leaving man's clause because there wouldn't be a single man or woman involved in a project. So there would never be an issue where if someone were to leave the company, the band would be kind of stranded high and dry without their champion or their team. Right. And just to be clear for listeners, that's something that has happened to bands, mostly at major labels where, you know, whoever brought you in leaves the company and then suddenly the band is marooned without a supporter. And I think I think fans should worry about that. You know, they should c- take that into consideration when they're thinking about signing to a label for sure, because that could be really devastating to your career. 
Exactly. I think that, you know, the, the A&R person, their job is to kind of, you know, obviously scout the band from the initial relationship, but also work with the band throughout the project. And it's not just helping a band get a record together, but it's, a, it's about overseeing that, you know, making sure the band get their, their creative vision kind of fulfilled by the label to the best of the label's ability. So it extends to the marketing campaign, the sales pitch, the radio campaign and all that stuff as well. So let's talk about the fun stuff. So when mm-hmm. you are working with a new band, what do you do? Do you go into the studio with them? Like, how does it work? We like to be pretty hands-off. We, we kind of gravitate towards bands that we kind of fall in love with because they've kind of ha- they kind of have a lot, if not most of it, figured out. So we don't pretend to be experts in the studio or songwriting geniuses by any means. So we like seeing a band that that's amazing live, that kind of has their touring thing figured out, that has a visual identity, that has a sonic identity. But, you know, sometimes those things can grow and those things can expand, and we like to be there for the bands and watch them do that as well. So, again, we're not totally in the studio. We're never looking for the single or whatever it is. But if a band asks, we definitely push them in directions that we think might be useful as far as producers go, as far as studios go. Or we encourage them to kind of take time and do it themselves. It's really kind of up to them and kind of what they want to happen. I think that with certain bands, you know, after a while, they they want to try something new. They may have been doing recording in their basement or recording on their laptop or whatever. And they come to a label like Matter or because we have resources that can allow them to go into that studio or work with that person that they may have kind of always wanted to work with. Is that something when you guys, like, let's say suggest a producer for a band, do you encourage them to have a meeting with a producer first and sort of feel out if they're going to work well together? Or do you, do you just sort of say, hey, I think this is a good match? I think it depends. You know, there's a, there's a group of people that we, we have worked with in the past that we like working with and that we communicate well with. So it kind of, it, it's helpful on our level, but, you know, it's obviously most important that where the creative stuff is happening, the producer and the band have that rapport. So we'll put a bunch of names in front of a band and you know, they'll look at their discographies, but I think it is important that they develop that relationship and that they have a chance to kind of get to know the producer on a creative and personal level. A good example of that would be Kurt Vile, who had recorded his records kind of on his own with, with friends in Philadelphia for most of his career. And then when we started working with him, we suggested working with a producer and he, we gave him a list of producers and he ended up working with John and Yellow on two of the records that we put out those guys ended up becoming really, really fast friends, and they kind of took the producer-artist relationship into their own hands, and the two of them kind of went into the lab together and kind of came out with a record. And I'm just thinking about what you said. It might be a little daunting for bands to hear this, but part of what I'm doing with this radio show is, is an attempt to educate bands about the reality of the music business. Mm-hmm. And I think what you said about when you do A&R, you're really looking for a band that's pretty much all the way there with themselves, and I, I feel the same way, you know, for the A&R that I do for Kill Rockstars. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's like we're not, it's not quite the same business. There might have been a time where you could say, hey, you're completely unformed. You've only written 10 songs, but I see this spark of genius in you. And, you know, I'd love to help you develop. I feel like we don't really have either the resources or the, you know, it's just it's just a different world. And I feel like we need bands to sort of come to the table with a lot more nowadays. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you often you're finding bands these days that are coming to the table with a booking agent and a manager, and maybe even a record in place, and and that's always that's always useful. 
and and you know now that there's resources where bands can do that that's that's kind of amazing now it's a lot easier you know that said i think you sign to a label like matador or kill rocksters because you're looking for those individuals and and you know it's not just about the resources it's not just about a recording advance or the fact that we can find you that producer or find you that studio i think it's about the fact that you're working with people who can collaborate with you on on a level to to make the things that you're bringing to the table a lot stronger but yeah like you said it, it's hard resource-wise to handhold a band to every extent, you know, we we work with a lot of bands that are unmanaged, so we're we're in the trenches with a lot of them, including some bands that have been on the label for over 20 years. But at at a certain extent, you know, either you kind of have to figure out how you're going to make it work on a broader scale, or or find a manager to help you do that. You know, we don't pretend to be experts when it comes to playing a show right. or writing a song or. Right doing your taxes. So there's a lot, there's a lot more involved than, than signing a deal and getting a, a recording advance. It is. I, I totally agree with you there. Do you have any advice for young bands that might be listening to this show that might be trying to figure out how to get a record deal? I think that when it comes to kind of taking it to the next level, you know, we like to believe that it's about that package. It's about figuring out who you are as a band. It's about figuring out what the live show is about or how you communicate what your vision is. In in the end, it, it, is, a, it is about a partnership and it's about a commercial partnership. So, you know, there's the, success is always the goal, but, you know, how you get there is the fun part and being and the creativity and the, and kind of getting, watching a show or listening to a record is, is the fun stuff and, and the the success comes with all that. Absolutely. Well, Robbie Morris from Matador Records, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? That was great. Thanks, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Iggy Pop, Milk Tea, Car Seat Headrest, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and Paul Ruest at Argo Studios and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.